Hello, I'm Rena Grobe. And I'm Madvi Romani. And this is Misinformed, a show where we'll be talking about our latest internet obsessions. So Rena, what did you get obsessed with this week? For the last couple of weeks, there's been a scandal in Germany surrounding the meat company Tönnies. Essentially what happened is that the company would employ these guest workers, or you call them Leiharbeiter in German, from Eastern European countries, and they house them in these containers. The reason they do this is because it's very, very cheap labor, which is terrible in and itself. But now there was the added layer that we're in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a crisis, and these guest workers continue to work through the pandemic without any hygiene or safety precautions in place, not where they were living or in the factories where they were working. And this has caused a mass outbreak of corona. And these people are far from their families, they're living in terrible conditions, and now the large amount of them are going to die due to reading capitalism. And along these lines, I was just thinking about how we're in the middle of a soft reopen, or in the case of Berlin, it seems like nothing ever happened and everything's just back to normal. But in Munich, where I am currently, and in other places, we're in the middle of a soft open. And I couldn't help but think about the fact that a soft open basically just means sending out working class people to test if a pandemic is really over and sort of sacrificing them so the rich can continue to stay in their homes. And Kenya's continued to produce meat during these times so that we could all buy really cheap meat. And I was just thinking about how in times of crisis, whether it's a pandemic or it's a climate crisis, it's always the working class who are sort of sacrificed for the rich and just of the ways that this manifests itself across the world in terrible ways. It's so interesting that you use the word sacrifice because in the US, in government documents, Until the 1970s, the government openly referred to certain parts of the US as national sacrifice areas. So, for example, the mountains of the Appalachia, which were blasted off for coal mining, because mountaintop removal, this method is cheaper than digging up the ground to get coal. So there are places in the landscape that are sacrificial areas. And of course, these sacrifice areas belong to someone. Somebody is fishing there. Somebody's ancestral land is there. Somebody is farming there. The land is tied to people and their ways of life. So when you label these areas sacrificial lands, you're also going to like sacrificial people. You're delineating who is sacrificial in terms of humans as well. And like you said, class plays a big influence in this. Also race plays a massive influence in this. So sacrificial lands and peoples and cultures that have been sacrificed traditionally have been cultures which are not the dominant white patriarchal system. So it has been overwhelmingly communities of color and and indigenous communities that have been sacrificed in order so that the rest of us can continue to drive our cars, cook things, use coal, use fossil fuels, and live in comfort while the people whose you know homes and lands have been sacrificed. The perfect example of this is in North Dakota with the pipeline where the white communities didn't want the pipeline to go through their neighborhoods because they knew that they were poisonous and that there would be an obvious oil spill. So they decided to reroute it through a Native American community and they had to protest so hard to make sure it didn't happen and it still happened. And then guess what? An oil spill happened, just like everybody was afraid of. And whose water did it contaminate? 
not the white community, the indigenous population that was living in that area. Kind of similarly, you know, corona cases have been particularly bad amongst indigenous communities in the states, as well as in, you know, low-income neighborhoods just around the country where people have to continue to go to work. And, you know, we, we are, yeah, we are sacrificing these people, and that's really shitty. I think something that people don't really talk about, when we talk about all these environmental issues, nobody really ever acknowledges the inherent classism and racism within these issues. We sort of push white people to the front of the conversation without acknowledging that oftentimes it was white people who caused these problems, and then it was people of color who have to live with the terrible consequences of our actions. Greta Thunberg, the Swedish climate change activist, I mean, good on her. She's a great individual, no shade to her. But how come she has become the poster child for environmental preservation when there are plenty of indigenous children in her age group who have been actively fighting for the preservation of their land and their rights? Yeah, similarly in Canada, with the tar sands, the mining of fossil fuels there has required the shredding of contracts with the First Nations that guaranteed the rights of indigenous peoples so that they could fish and lead their traditional lives on their ancestral lands. And these rights and these agreements that were signed with the British Crown were destroyed in order so that mining for fossil fuels could be done on their land rather than white areas. And like you say, these people have been fighting really hard and protesting really hard for their rights and in order to preserve their lands. But there's also something else here with the First Nations and Indigenous peoples, because part of the way that, for example, the Canadian government has approached their relationship with these people is that the Indigenous people, they have a different system where they respect the land, they don't want it mined, they don't want all the resources is pulled out of it. It's just a different system where you give back, you think about the future generations, you have a respect for nature. And within our capitalist system, this does not work. And in order for our capitalist system to dominate, what the Canadian government, for example, have done for decades is to systematically try to sever the indigenous people's connection not only to the land, but also to their own language, their communities and their cultures. I was really, really shocked about a couple of weeks ago when a friend of mine posted on Instagram and her mother is an indigenous person from Canada and she got a check for $21,000. She was taken away from her family when she was seven years old and adopted by a racist, violent, cruel woman who was essentially looking for a farmhand to help her with her domestic duties and got, in her own words, a lazy Indian. So that is less than $1,000 a year for not having had a family, culture, language, and also, obviously, it passed on her children, her, her children's children were disinherited from their land and their culture. It's a practice that continues today. And her check and her kind of compensation, if you want to call it that, 21000 is not that much, was part of a settlement for a class action against the government for something called the 60s scoop, which was the practice that occurred in Canada of scooping up indigenous children from their families and communities 
for placement in foster homes. It began in the 1950s and continued in the 1980s. So all of this environmentalism, capitalism, racism, and this hierarchy of saying who's the most important in society, which is the dominant white class and who is sacrificial, is really all connected. Yeah, so we're heading towards something that the United Nations calls climate apartheid with, you know, the consequences of climate change, including sea levels rising, we're having more severe droughts, wildfires, and other natural disasters, it hits poor people hardest. And according to a report by the United Nations, climate change could push more than 120 million people into poverty by 2030. It should be added that this report was published before corona. So obviously this will be impacted by corona. And the report warns that in a future of climate apartheid, wealthy people will pay to escape overheating, hunger, and conflict while poor people are left to suffer. And along with climate apartheid, we really have a problem of environmental racism. In the US, about 56% of the population near toxic water wastes are people of color. Poor communities are more likely to be closer to industrial areas, oil farms, freeways, factories. And this goes for both predominantly black or indigenous communities and poor communities, because obviously the two are not the same. According to a local news report in California, Latinos and Blacks breathe in 40% more air pollution than their white counterparts, and Black children are more likely to have asthma than their white counterparts. So all of these statistics are incredibly shocking until you think and realize that these things are very actively being done on purpose. We're building power plant. We're not building them in white affluent neighborhoods. We're building them close to or communities that don't have the financial means to sort of rebel against them or move. You know, we're taking advantage of the most vulnerable to further capitalism. A really disgusting example of this is that in the middle of the pandemic, the city of Chicago decided to blow up a hundred year old coal power plant in Little Village with little or no notice to the majority black and brown communities. That obviously caused a lot of air pollution and we're in the middle of a respiratory virus pandemic and nobody is holding the government accountable because the major news media outlets don't care because it's not in their interest to care. And then along these lines, another kind of hypocritical aspect of the entire environmentally friendly sort of narrative is, is that yeah, things like, you know, we should not using plastic, we should be using reusable cups, we shouldn't be using plastic water bottles. In fact, you know, Canadians throw away 3 million tons of plastic waste every year. And people have pointed out that there are people who actually have to rely on plastic water bottles for fresh drinking water, whether it's, you know, in Flint, Michigan, or on reserves where people don't have access to running water. So these people have no choice but to rely on plastic water bottles, yet we are actively shaming them because we are privileged enough to be like, "Mm, we shouldn't use plastic. Whereas we have caused the problem and now they have to live with the consequences of it. And then on top of it, we're shaming them for it. Yeah, I mean, if you look globally at what happened to the climate, most of 
the blame does go to the global north, especially former colonial powers. And also, you mentioned the UN and black lives in the US. And what's really important for us to see, which has been neglected by older establishments like Greenpeace, is that it's all related. The systems that disregard black lives in the US are also the same systems that disregard black lives in arid deserts in Africa or disregard the black lives whose water has been polluted in the Niger Delta. And if we look at the Paris Agreement, for example, when they reached this goal where we should keep below the two Celsius degrees, two Celsius is actually double of what we've done so far. And in 2009 in Copenhagen, African delegates walked out en masse because they said simply going to be disastrous for us because in the end, climate change is going to affect these countries in these areas more. And in the Europe, we're all like, oh, you know, the refugees and we have to protect our own and we we're looking after the security of our own lives. But it's all related. There was this really interesting uh, chart that somebody did. I can't remember who, but they showed the aridity lines in the desert and where the aridity lines are in the world where the water supply is least is where also the US and the UK have the most amount of drones and the most amount of conflicts have occurred so not only climate change but also conflicts such as the one in Syria are caused by climate change and that's going to affect us in Europe as well so it's in everyone's best interest to see how all of these dots are connected you know, the West, and I say the West here, but that's also a sort of complicated and incorrect term, isn't it? Irrelevant. The West sort of, we've been driving cars for how many years? We've been flying on planes for how many years? According to Vox, 82% of the flights in the world are taken by 2% of the population. This 2% being from Europe, the US, Canada, and Australia. So it seems really, I guess, pompous for us to have driven cars for so many years, you know, to have a jet set sort of lifestyle. And then when other countries who we have colonized, stripped of natural resources, and just basically ruined, now that their time is coming for us to turn around and be like, mm, you can't do that. It's bad for the environment. Keeping in mind that like we kind of ruined the environment in the first place. Yeah, about the planes, we all have this option to like offset our carbon. So you can just pay a little bit extra, like two years extra every time you take a plane, and then somebody will plant a tree somewhere. But I was reading about this term, green colonialism, and all of these green conservation organizations that plant trees in places, they buy up swathes of land where indigenous people live, they plant trees there, and then they cut off their access, often violently, often using security to stop them from accessing their own lands. So the Green Movement is a form of colonialism. A really extreme example of this is the JNF, which is the Jewish National Fund. And you can buy a tree where they're going to plant. And they have this slogan, turning the desert green. And they boast that they've posted more than 250 million trees in Israel since 1901. And many of them are actually not indigenous to the region. But this is not just another green NGO. It's one of the largest private landowners in the state of Israel. And despite a lot of ongoing kind of court cases and stuff, it refuses to lease or sell land to non-Jews. So again, they're disinheriting basically the Palestinians of 
their land through this veneer of green conservation projects. Also in Israel, when the separation barrier, so the wall went up in the West Bank, the only dissenting views from Israelis came because they were concerned about the fact that would be losing swathes of flora and fauna. So, for example, you know, there was these special irises or there were passages that animals used that would be cut off by a wall. So they were concerned about animals and flora and fauna over human lives. And, you know, it just reminds me of what you were saying where, yeah, you know, now we want to be concerned about the environment and we disregard all those people who have just far more pressing problems and we kind of judge them. But what right do we have when we place all this environmental stuff over the value of human lives like it's all connected what you were saying before about the planting trees reminded me i worked with this lovely musician on a project when i was living in london and he was telling me about how he grew up in an on an estate in camden and one day, these well-meaning group of white people came and started planting flowers on their estate to make it beautiful. And he was like, no, don't do this. We don't want you here. Why are you doing this? And he made two points. He said, one, they didn't consider that maybe it was intentionally kept the way it was so that like white people don't feel comfortable just coming on. And second, he was like, I don't need flowers. I need you to fix a corrupt system that's keeping me in poverty and keeping us from advancing in this corrupt capitalistic world. Like, fuck your flowers. It's putting a band-aid on a bullet wound. Interestingly enough, in the movie Cowspiracy, which is a very controversial movie, and, you know, that's a whole nother podcast episode on its own, but it was trending in Germany this week. It was like on the top 10 most watched things, which I think has to do with the Tönnies scandal. But one of the things that is incredibly interesting in that documentary is that Kip Anderson, who is the filmmaker, is trying very desperately to reach out to like Greenpeace and WWF to sort of find out what he can do to contribute to making the world a better place. So he wants to do his part and he just can't get in touch with them. They won't take his calls. They won't answer his questions. And he does a little bit of digging and he ends up finding out that these white corporations, you know, who are for climate change, for animal preservation, are actually being paid by meat conglomerate companies to sort of recenter the narrative so that we focus on individual guilt rather than the fact that the meat and dairy industry is one of the biggest polluters. Now, this is not to say that we all should individually do our part, we shouldn't recycle, so on and so forth. But the a capitalistic society is making individual people feel bad about the small contributions they make to climate change rather than the big horrible thing capitalism is doing. And this goes back to the example about the plastic bottles. Like we're going to make people feel bad about drinking out of plastic bottles when we've ruined their water resources or we haven't given them access to water. So it's a full cycle. It comes round and round. And organizations like PETA, who do terrible things to people who are wearing fur and are supposedly for animal rights, are actually making money off animal abuse. So it's like the big hypocritical 
nature of activists and sort of how, yeah, wearing fur in 2020, you don't need to wear fur. But what about indigenous communities where it's very cold and they need furs? People have such a tunnel vision when they think about these issues that they don't take the time to consider anyone else's life. And the fact that our self-righteous path towards saving the environment is disregarding problems we created and the struggles of neglected communities. Yeah, so what you're talking about, this frustration with traditional white-dominated environmental groups, gave birth to what is called the environmental justice movement, and that emerged in the 1980s. It was cemented in 1991 at the first National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit, attended by academics and leaders from Black, Latino, Native American, and Asian American communities. And they drafted the 17 principles of environmental justice. Number two is environmental justice demands that public policy be based on mutual respect and justice for all peoples free from any form of discrimination or bias. And we'll link to the rest in our show notes. I was thinking also when we were researching all of this about veganism, because yeah, the meat and dairy industry is causing a lot of the world pollution. And I mean, I'm guilty. I really like milk and I really like cheese. Sorry. But one of the arguments, not against veganism, but mainly to sort of think twice about veganism is the fact that it's so heavily coded in privilege because living a healthy lifestyle is incredibly expensive and it takes time. Vegetables are just more expensive than ready meals or meat. You know, meat is so cheap. That's why we're having this massive scandal with Tunis. But also there's another issue with the conversation around veganism other than the classist issue to it is also it's just it, it doesn't take into consideration that people have complicated relationship with food. So for example, if you're asking people to sort of restrict and monitor their food, you're ignoring the fact that this is really difficult or triggering for people who have eating disorders and you're assuming that everyone is in the same mental and financial state as you are. And so, yeah, you know, eating meat is not wrong. There's nothing inherently wrong with eating meat. The meat industry is a problem. So moving forward, I think we just need to acknowledge that veganism is an elitist issue and that there is an assumption of privilege that drives much of the shame on non-vegans. We should be more concerned with the fact that everybody doesn't have access to good food or sustainable food or affordable food. We need to recenter the conversation. We need to move away from, oh, meat is murder, or I don't eat this, don't eat that. It's like, okay, why have we ended up in this position? Why is there a need for this? And why does the consequences of the meat industry and the dairy industry or just climate change in general, why do these disproportionately affect communities of color? Like I remember when I used to live in New York, there used to be all these like health food places. And there's one called Liquiteria, which has all these like healthy smoothies. And I mean, they're really delicious, but a smoothie is $9. And that was one of the cheaper ones. So if you're wealthy, all of these things are easy. But if you're not wealthy, then sometimes eating a burger from McDonald's is one of the few choices you have. And shaming people for that is terrible. And you're speaking from such a place of privilege. Also, these places like health food stores and smoothie bars, what is often not thought about is that these are very white spaces. 
I'm Mindy Honey, a writer wrote this piece in Long Reads called Woman of Colour in Wide Open Spaces. So what happened is she left the corporate world because she was annoyed by the structures and the racism and the patriarchy there. And then she did an MFA and of course she faced the same thing. And after she did her MFA, she went to the national parks to just like find herself, connect to nature. But in this atmosphere as well, she was surrounded by white people and she, in this essay in Long Reads, documents all of her encounters. She says, there's just one quote, but I recommend you read the whole thing just to like see her journey or what should be a nice relaxing trip, you know, how she experiences it as a black woman. She says, and I quote, There is nowhere for me to go in this country to escape the trauma that well-meaning white people inflict. I can't block out the white noise. I'll always be restricted by race. Theirs, not mine. Corporate America, MFA, National Parks. And as we've shown in this podcast, I guess this is a recurring theme for us. This is this dominant system that we have. It's pervasive and it affects every single area of our lives and also the planet. And it doesn't have to be the only system. And we should probably think of a better way to organize or even go with a different system, which all of these native indigenous peoples, for example, they had different systems which were working and not fucking the planet. If you like this podcast, please rate us and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and share it with your friends. And if you like, you can share your internet obsession with us. Tweet us. I am at Rina underscore Grobe underscore and Madvi is at Madvi Romani. Follow us on Instagram at the underscore MS underscore informed or shoot us an email misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. You will find links to our Twitter and Instagrams in our show notes, as well as links to all the content we have discussed this week. Until next time, thank you for listening.